Hello and welcome to the Last Looks podcast, a show where we catch up with talented hairstylists and makeup artists in the film and television industry. We'll pick their super creative brains and find out all the good stuff. Join me, your host, Jamie Lee, in finding out what's what in the hair and makeup departments around the world. And now, a word from our sponsor. Sammy, great to have you back on the podcast. Jamie Lee, it's great to be back. Now, I would love to continue our chat about Hask and Setbag must-haves. So last week you told us about the amazing collection of nourishing hair oils Hask offers. So what's in the bag this week? Well, no set bag is complete without our five-in-one leave-in conditioning sprays. This super popular collection offers four different variations, each designed to target a specific hair care problem. It's true. You never want to be caught without a detangler. I mean, ain't that the truth? Naughty hair is like the bane of my existence. <laughs> <laughs> so just to deep dive into these products a bit, I'll start off with the Argan Oil 5-in-1 Leave-In. It conditions and detangles, but does so much more. This is our number one selling Hass product. We like to call it our miracle product, which has five amazing benefits. So formulated with Argan Oil from Morocco, this specialty blend of ingredients packs your strands with moisturizing and conditioning agents that help restore dry and damaged hair. The five benefits are conditions detangles, adds shine, repairs and controls frizz, provides thermal protection, and lastly, moisturizes to prevent breakage. Next, we have our Biotin Boost 5-in-1. It's a lightweight formula that contains biotin, collagen, and coffee, which prevents breakage and helps thicken and detangle fine, limp, thin hair. Then we have our Minoy Coconut 5-in-1, designed with pure coconut oil to soften, detangle, and hydrate super dry strands. So this really improves elasticity for hair so it can feel strong, healthy, and shiny. Finally, there's what quickly has become our hero product. So this is the tea tree oil and rosemary five-in-one, which cools, soothes, and revitalizes the hair and scalp. So great point of difference, hair and scalp. Also, don't forget about that thermal protection. And as you can see, getting camera-ready hair is as easy when using the Haas collections. And the hairstylist faves found in their set bags provide just what they need. I have to say I love the tea tree and rosemary. I'm all about invigorating that scalp and it smells so good. Thank you. We thought it was really important to come out with a product where the ingredient story is famous for its purifying and invigorating properties. Thanks again to you and Hask. It has been so awesome having you on the podcast, Sammy, and super informative. Amy Lee, it was a pleasure to be here. And let me leave you and your listeners in the trade industry with this. The Hask brand welcomes the opportunity to continue building our relationship with the TV and film styling community. So if we can support a project you're working on, please send us an email at hask at stonemanagement.net and we'd be more than happy to help. That's so cool, Sammy. Thanks again. This was so fun. Thank you for having me. And now, our feature presentation. Today, I'm speaking with hair designer Chris Clark. Chris tells us about his start in the wonderful world of theatre, how he moved from being on stage to backstage, and then ended up in the film and TV world. We chat about the mentors Chris had along his career journey, and how he is now mentoring others. Pictures up. Last looks. Rolling. Rolling. 
and action. Welcome to the Last Looks podcast, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, I would like you to finish this sentence for me, okay? All right. Once upon a time, there was a boy named Chris, and when he grew up, he wanted to be... When I was a kid, I wanted to be an actor. Nice. I started in the theater um, very young with a company called Children's Theater of Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And I thought when I grow up, I was going to be a classically trained Shakespearean actor. Okay. So what what changed for you? (laughs) (laughs) It all changed my freshman year of college. I was going to a school in southern Utah, where Utah Shakespeare Festival is. Mm -hmm. And we had to do a rotation through all of the technical programs. Okay. So you did a semester with lighting, with sound, with sets, uh, with all the different departments. And mine started in the costume department. And we were doing a production of Little Shop of Horrors. And the grad student who was designing the costumes for that production asked me to help with hair and makeup because I was already in the beginning stage makeup class at that school, which I was nuts about that class. Mm-hmm. And my first thing helping with the hair and makeup for Little Shop of Horrors was doing a set and a comb out of a 1960s bubble wig for yeah. one of the doo-wop girls. Uh-huh. And my life changed. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> and I felt like all of my peers in the acting program needed it like they needed to be an actor they needed to be on stage it fed them mm-hmm. and for me it was the theater right if i needed to stay in the building somehow mm-hmm. and acting wasn't going to be it because i didn't have that same desire that my peers had mm-hmm. and then i found hair and makeup and that's what kept me in my tribe my theater tribe so going back to when like how did you first figure out that as a child that you even wanted to get up on stage like did your parents go to theater a lot like how did that even start it started actually at church okay there was a church plays we would do at christmas and sometime in the spring and it sort of fed into this desire of community for me of the weirdos and the expressive kids and i just i found a a group of kinship I found a group of people that just felt right to be around. That's so cool. And so once you've dressed out this bubble wig and you're like, oh my goodness, everything is going to change directions slightly. How did you move forward with that? Well, I finished that year in college and then I decided to move to New York City at 19, having never been there. Wow. (laughs) And I just convinced my parents that it was going to be a good idea Mm -hmm. because I thought if I'm going to finish college, with a theater degree and focus on design instead, I want to go kind of live the life and make sure that this was the right path for me. Mm -hmm. So I moved to New York for a year and did off-Broadway theater and off-off-off-Broadway theater and whatever I could do to to get experience and to do hair and makeup and to be a part of the storytelling. And then about after a year, my dad was like, you need to finish college. And I was like, of course I do. So he offered for me to go to Arizona State University, back back to my hometown. Mm -hmm. And he, because he went there and he said, you can live in the guest house if you want to do that. And I thought it was a fantastic idea. So I came back to Arizona and finished my three years of college at Arizona State University uh, with a focus on hair and makeup and lighting design. Okay. And I was the only hair and makeup person there. So I designed all of the main stage productions, did all the wigs, did all the makeup. But at the same time, the an equity theater in downtown Phoenix called Actor Theater Phoenix, which unfortunately no longer exists now, mm. they needed a hair and makeup designer. So I would go to production meetings with my lighting professor and my scenic design professor. And I got the experience of being in the classroom with them and then being in like actual working environments with them. Yeah. 
So from my sophomore year of college, I was designing 12 main stages a year. Wow. And doing all my undergrad work. So it was a huge, huge lesson for me. It was a very, very formative part of like my experience doing hair and makeup. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. You must have been <laughs> a very busy boy. <laughs> I was, but it it's also how I made money. It was right. like the, the school would pay me and the theater would pay me and not a whole lot, but I needed to work. Mm. And I was just so lucky enough to actually work in what I wanted to do for a living. That's awesome. Do you still have contact with people from college? The costume designer that initially put a roller in my hand for the first time, mm-hmm. he and I are still very good friends. Oh, that's so cool. So what happens? Do you go back to New York or? I literally take the cap and gown off and the next day go back to New York. <laughs> You're like, okay, I'm done. I'm heading back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've got to go. I got to go do this. So I get back to New York and I had friends from college who were also there at the time with like folks who had graduated a couple of years before me. Mm-hmm. And I was there maybe three months and then I started swinging on rent on Broadway because it's like through a contact of a college friend who knew that the hair and makeup supervisor of, of rent on Broadway. So I was there probably two or three times a week covering shifts, uh, doing the show. And I was like, Rent was the perfect show for me because mm-hmm. I was the right age. I was the right demographic for that audience, like young, gay, struggling in New York. Mm-hmm. Like it was such a great show for me. And two or three months later, The Lion King was coming back from its out-of-town tryout in Minnesota. And they were looking for a third hairdresser for that show. Yeah. And I was one of the people who interviewed and I got the position. And so I had my first my first full-time union job about four or five months after I got back to New York. Perfect. It was amazing. Amazing. I was the youngest person on crew by five years. It was just a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. So I started out in the hair department and then the makeup department had left to do some um, postgraduate work. Mm. And so the assistant moved up to department head and I switched departments and went into makeup. Oh, wow. For about four years. Mm. And at the same time, setting up the LA production, setting up the first national tour. And then they shipped me off to Sydney, Australia for like four or five months. This is all with the Lion King. All with the Lion King. Wow. That's so amazing that you can work on one show for such a long time. Like, that's incredible. It was great. It was really great. I had just, I, I felt a real kinship to that company, the actors, the music. It just really was a great time for me. And you got to do a bit of travel. So that's also pretty awesome. Yeah, it was amazing. I had no idea that just because I had worked in the hair department first and then Mm. moved over to the makeup department, Mm. I was the only one in the United States that knew every track and every wig and every makeup. So I was the one chosen to go traveling with the show. That's amazing. So you would, you went down to Australia and then were you hiring local to, and then teaching them what they needed to do? Is that how it works? Well, they, that show had already been up and running and the department had quit. No, the department had fired the second and then quit. Right. <laughs> and the second wouldn't come back. Oh, okay. So there was no one in Australia who knew how to run the show. Right. So I, I literally get a call like, can you be in Australia in 11 days? And I was like, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I never course. been. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes, of course I'll go live in Sydney. <laughs> so how long were you there for? Like four or five months. Um, wow. And then they were bringing over a department head from Italy to take over for me. And I came back to the United States. Awesome. And continued on. So how, like, was it four years total that you were with? I think I did another couple months then at that point. And then 
I moved out of New York for a couple of years and then came back. And then that started like my, my journey with Wicked when I came back. Okay. And just going back a little bit and understanding just working in the theater world, when you're doing off-Broadway stuff and then you get a job on Broadway, is that a different feeling? Like you feel like you've stepped in a, another direction? Absolutely. I moved to New York to be a Broadway hairdresser. Okay. Like it was the pinnacle of what I thought I was going to do in my career. Mm-hmm. And I loved the Broadway community. I loved all of the activism that was happening at that time with Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. I was doing a lot of volunteer work. Um, I just, I love that community. And it just, that was it for quite a while. It was a magical, magical time. That's so awesome. So how does that shift happen from doing stage work to then doing television and film? What brought that on? I was um, the department head of hair at Wicked for about four years at mm-hmm. that at the time that I was going to make the transition. Um, I had already, to go back a little bit, I had already done one film. After I got back from Sydney, a friend of mine called Mindy Hall, who is a like Oscar-winning makeup artist, mm-hmm. a good, good friend of mine, asked me if I wanted to do the movie Rent and come in and be the key hair because they needed someone who knew Adina Menzel and someone who could do all of the wigs. Yeah. So I had never been on a film set before. I didn't know what an Apple box was. I didn't know what a seed sand was. I didn't know anything. <laughs> and I get there and I'm presented with these wigs that are these $8,000 film wigs mm. that I was terrified by and had to cut them. <laughs> and Mindy Hall literally taught me everything about how to be on set and how to be in the film world. Wow. Then I'm back at Wicked for a couple of years. And then I was starting to have some repetitive motion problems with my hands. Mm-hmm. I was doing the same wigs eight times a week. I took care of the two witches, so Glinda and Alphaba. Mm-hmm. And the Glinda wigs are intense and heavily, heavily styled every single day. Right. And I was having some motion problems, and I was beginning to have some tendonitis symptoms, and I was in physical therapy, and I thought I needed to take a break. Like, I needed to let my body rest and heal. Yeah. And my friend who I had done Saturday Night Live with and who had worked on Broadway as well was the department head of Gossip Girl. Mm-hmm. And she's like, why don't you take a leave of absence from Wicked and then come day play on Gossip Girl and do background. Mm-hmm. And you're going to make more working two or three days than you will on Broadway. So I thought, well, that sounds great. So I put in for a leave of absence. It was approved. And then off I went into day play land in New York City. On Gossip Girl which is fun. (laughs) I'm Gossip Girl. Yeah, it was super fun. The department head, she and I, Jennifer Johnson, she and I are still really, really good friends. And so that sort of started the journey. And then from Gossip Girl, I would, you know, day play on a few other shows. And the money was just such a difference from Broadway, even though I was making a lot on Broadway, like one day in in television was just a lot more for Mm -hmm. a lot less work. Yeah, like physically demanding work. And so I just started day playing here and there. And then I got asked to key a few things from people that I had met while I was day playing. And then I officially left Wicked. I resigned in the middle of my leave of absence and just threw my full weight into making a career out of film and television. So what was your first full-time full-time gig? It was a very, very, very short-lived project at the WB called The Beautiful Life mm-hmm. about models. And we were shut down in the middle of our fifth episode at lunch. 
Right. And so that was my first key position and the job disappeared. And we loaded out the next Monday, I think. Mm -hmm. And then Mindy Hall, again, who has been so influential in my life, asked me to department head a movie called Margin Call. Mm -hmm. And it was an all nights, 19 day, I believe, film about the 2008 crash with a bunch of stars in it. Demi Moore was in it and Stanley Tucci, who I got reunited with later at Feud. And it was this amazing experience, this really quick movie. Mm. And then I was moving into like keen big features. Right after that, I left that movie the next day after we wrapped, I loaded in to do the remake of the movie Arthur as the key. Oh, cool. That's fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And I see, so did you do some work on Saturday Night Live as well? Yeah, I was at Saturday Night Live when I was doing The Lion King. So yeah. I would leave on the nights that we worked, I would leave after the matinee and go do the evening show at SNL. Oh, I wasn't wow. a full-time hairdresser. I was just there on the on the actual Saturdays that we worked. Okay. That the show was that the show aired. So you've seen firsthand the insanity that happens. Oh yeah, I was three seasons. <laughs> That's amazing. I spoke to the heads of department that are currently there, and it just I couldn't stop laughing through the whole interview because it all just sounds so insane. And they must. Oh, it's bonkers. Just, yeah, the the oh, they just must have such calm. I don't know. I I, I think I just freak out every five seconds, constantly, all the time. So, but um, the thing about it, <laughs> the thing about SNL is it's theater. Right. Is it's you're doing theater. It just happens to be taped. Yeah. So the quick changes are real. Yeah. The way it's set up is just like doing a play. You don't necessarily know the play very well or what order it's going to be in. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was theater. So that's what I, I loved about it. And those those folks are dear friends over there. Like they're good people. And Louis was there when I was there. Oh, amazing. Yeah. I kind of jumped back to SNL. Yeah, I did um, the Arthur remake and then another picture with the same department head, Man on a Ledge. And then, yeah, I started Keen Features. So Country Strong, which we did in Nashville, Extremely Loud, Incredibly Close in New York. And The Wolf of Wall Street was a big deal as, as a key. Yeah, I absolutely. I was going to say, I mean, you've got a wide variety of projects under your belt. So like everything from, as you say, Gossip Girl to Wolf of Wall Street and hitting Pose and The Politician and Feud. I mean, let's chat about some of them because any faves come to mind? I have two favorites, I think, um, mm-hmm. for two different reasons. Yeah. The Normal Heart, which was the first project I did with Ryan Murphy, uh, was in New York. I was hired as a local. Uh, yeah. They wanted to have someone in New York. Being a part of being able to tell that story and being able to give honor to the people whose stories that was. Just for those who may not have seen the film, give us a little background as to what The Normal Heart is about. Sure. The Normal Heart originated as a play, and it is about the beginnings of the AIDS epidemic in New York City and the rise of gay men's health crisis as an organization. Mm -hmm. And it's autobiographical, and it is about gay men and lesbians struggling to have the AIDS pandemic recognized by the city government and while trying to create a community of self-care for everyone. Yeah. So, so a lot of these stories were based on real people and their real circumstances uh, succumbing to, to AIDS. Yeah, absolutely. And so what that started, you would have been doing period stuff like early 80s? Yeah, it was early 80s. And it was everyone's own hair. So it was it was all men except for one woman. And my second did her. It was just the story. It was just 
being able to be a part of like being honest and being truthful and respectful to these stories and to be in, in, as accurate as we can be. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, do you find that you get more satisfaction in some ways from working on a project that has such a strong message and telling a story like that? I love the part of my job where I am a small percentage of the storytelling. Mm-hmm. I'm not just there to put in beach waves or just slick some hair back. I want to be a part of the conversation of who these people are. Yeah. And in that show, and especially within Ryan Murphy's world, I'm given a lot of latitude and a lot of space to explore those thoughts with the actors and within my own ideas of the story and the period. And it just is so meaningful to me. And it just, it it matters to me a great deal to be able to find the truth and be a part of the storytelling. That's very cool. Just gives your work world another level, doesn't it? Yeah. I think it's because I started out on the other side of it, maybe that, yeah, it matters to me a lot. And then there was also an incident on that movie where we had to take a, like, I think it was a three month break Mm -hmm. for Matt Bomer to lose the weight for his death scenes. And one of the actors had a bit of a meltdown and shaved his head. Oh God. (laughs) I hear about these stories, but (laughs) yeah, it happened. It happened to me. Okay. And they freaked out, of course, because the hair wouldn't grow back in time for Mm -hmm. when we came back. Yeah. And, they said to me, like, well, what, what are we going to do? And I was like, well, on this film, I'm just dressing men's hair and doing men's haircuts, um, but I'm really a wig person. Mm-hmm. So if you can monetize me to have a proper wig made, I'll have it colored by the same colorist, and you will not be able to tell the difference. Mm-hmm. And they did not believe me, but they gave me the money anyway. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> what else are they going to so do? <laughs> we, yeah. So when we came back to shooting, we didn't even have trailers yet. We weren't loaded in. So I had rented a like a VIP room at a really high-end salon that I use in New York for all my colors at the time. Mm. And had the actor in, had the wig in, um, put the wig on the actor. Ryan Murphy said, it's the best wig he's ever seen. And we proceeded to shoot the rest of the movie. Awesome. That's what you want to hear. <laughs> yeah. And then maybe two weeks later... I hear from one of the producers, um, we want to talk to you about our next project called The People vs. O.J. Simpson. It's going to be a lot of wigs. That's cool. So if that actor had not shaved his head, I do yeah. not know that I, I would have gone on the path that I've gone on with Ryan Murphy oh, television. Isn't that interesting? So at first you're like, what a nightmare. And then I, there's a silver lining. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. And what was the other... Um, projects you were referring to and you said you got two favorites that stand out oh it's feud betty and joan for sure oh yeah it was my favorite artistically i just loved dressing that hair we had 63 lace front wigs in that show i'm really i love period i love i can get totally a dorky like go down a whole road about how much i love period hair um (laughs) but i just i felt so connected to that styling i just loved it and Matt doing all of those matches and then all the journey that Jessica Lange's character went on mm-hmm. and being able to be a part of that storytelling with her and the matches to whatever happened to baby Jane. Like it just was so artistically fulfilling. There was one point that I was doing EPK for FX in our trailer mm. and they wanted me positioned with the chair with all the wigs in the background. And it was like this menagerie, literally, like 63 lace fronts behind me. Oh, my God. Just just <laughs> prepping those just for that would have been a nightmare. <laughs> totally. And You're like, because, you want like, what? <laughs> 
And there was a there was a scene in the in the show where um, Betty Davis has to pick her whatever happened to Baby Jane wig out of mm-hmm. a stock of wigs. Yeah. So a hairdresser character has thirteen wigs, and Ryan wanted everything from a Marie Antoinette to like some everything like so we had to prep all of these set dressing wigs, and one of the wigs, which I had as a little Easter egg for myself, mm. was one of the wigs from OJ that Sarah Paulson wore as Marsha Clark, and I dressed it into a thirties kind of silhouette so you wouldn't recognize it yeah but like i know it's there and it just kind of makes me giggle <laughs> that's awesome i love that that's amazing and correct me if i'm wrong but did you win an emmy for that yes that was my that was my second emmy amazing um, how many have you won i've won three Woohoo! congratulations thank you it was three <laughs> in a row which was really crazy you mean three um, consecutive years or three consecutive years oh yeah. wow that's exciting. Yeah, it was really cool. It was, I did not see it coming at all. <laughs> not even by the third time. <laughs> we expecting it. One, I was like, they're never going to give me another one the next year. <laughs> I don't think it works like that though, does it? They're not like, no, no, he's, he's filled his quota. He can't have any more. Let's choose somebody else. <laughs> it just sort of like, you didn't, you don't want to get your hopes up. No, of course. Absolutely. So with winning Emmys, have you found that that has had any effect on your career? I think that's a, I think that's hard to say mm. because I continue to work so much with Ryan. Yeah. It's not like I'm interviewing for projects or I'm um, I'm just sort of assigned projects. Yeah. But since the pandemic started, I've stayed home in Austin. Mm-hmm. So I I keep turning them down. And so other things locally have been popping up. Oh, cool. So I think. I think those wins are now starting to help career-wise when I'm not so tied to traveling back and forth to LA. Yeah. So I'm assuming that there was a kind of a large window there where it was doing a lot of Ryan Murphy productions. Yeah, almost exclusively for several years. Okay. And how, for anyone that hasn't worked in the Ryan Murphy world, how does it, do you feel it differs from other projects? I think Ryan Murphy is a, as a repertory theater company. So the people come back again and again and again to do different projects Mm -hmm. with the same design team. So the costume designer has been there, I think 18 years. Aaron's been there 16, 15, 16. So Siglia has been on the American Horror Story side for a really long time. I've been there, I think about eight years now. Wow. So it's a lot of promotion from within and it's a lot of like, let's bring the gang back together to do another show. That's so cool. Yeah, this it's really amazing for the collaborative process because I know I know everyone's a vibe at this point. I know how everyone works. Mm. I know how I work. Yeah. And it just it really I don't know, you're at an advantage already when you read the script because you you know what the feeling is gonna be like when you go into those meetings and you know what Ryan's gonna expect. Right. And he has a very specific aesthetic that he wants to work within. Mm-hmm. So already knowing that and already knowing what to bring him when he asks for things, it really makes it, I think it ups the ante for everyone because we already, the shorthand's already there. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's just so nice that they continue to bring the same people together because it's just like, well, if it worked that time, surely it's going to work again and again. It's, I feel very fortunate to be, to be continued to be asked back yeah. for sure. I mean, it's so often in our line of work that you, every time you start a new project, it's with the almost an entirely new group of people, <laughs> not so yeah. much within your team or maybe makeup, but just production wise, it's a whole, you know, different director, different 
different aesthetic, completely different feel, and you're just spending the first part of that kind of finding your feet to figure out like what what is expected of me in this particular situation and this project. So that yeah, that that shorthand must be really nice. It is. It's really yeah, and they're good people. Everyone's super creative and super nice. Well, that's what you want. Number one, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> who who wants to have a bad day at work really you know? Know. especially when you're there for like 15 hours <laughs> a day <Yeah. laughs> no one wants that <laughs> it's like can we all just get on thank you absolutely a question that i get asked by people like stylists who maybe haven't been working in the industry that long is like how do you learn to know what to do like as a key or to run a department. So I'm always just like, wow, that's different for everybody because, I mean, it's not really written in a book or completely learnt. You don't go to necessarily a school just to learn how to run a department. So how do you think you learnt how to run a department? I think it was by key, by keying for really good people. Yeah. And I think, like I said before, Mindy Hall had an enormous impact on my education and my set etiquette. And even though we were in separate departments, Mm. she really was, she took me under her wing and was very influential to me and keen for people who I didn't quite jibe with their methods and people who I would take things away from their methodology. And it was just sort of a learning process and an osmosis of what works, what doesn't work, what makes me feel good at work, mm. what doesn't make me feel good at work. Mm. Watching people interact with ADs and producers, especially on The Wolf of Wall Street, it was such an enormous project. Mm. Sandy Pell had an enormous amount of influence over hair and makeup. And just watching those dynamics play out, yeah, I think just sitting back and being quiet and just watching how people work, I think taught me a lot about how I want to spend my days. Yeah, that observation goes a long way, doesn't it? Just paying attention I always find that I definitely remember when things made me feel not good and how I don't want to do that to somebody else like those are the things that really really stuck with me more so than the the positives which is I don't know if that's a good thing but I think that definitely helped me it was just like I'd see things playing out and I'd be like oh no I don't want to do it like that yet this is no fun (laughs) yeah I yeah and I've been on sets that I've been department head where I'll see a day player be really mean and cruel to a, to a background person. And then they're wrapped like that's just no place for any of that, like traumatic energy anywhere on my sets. I just, I would much rather have a mediocre hairdresser that is a super nice person mm-hmm. that I can help train or I can help show things mm-hmm. than someone who's a rock star hairdresser. Who's a jerk. Yeah. It's just not how I want to spend my day. No, it's very true. And it's good to put that into practice and actually follow through with doing that. That's awesome. I think it's important. Yeah, it is. So when you're putting your team together, what are you looking for? Usually it's about diversity in many ways. What does this project need that I don't have? What skill am I not that great at that I need someone else to come supplement what I'm doing? Mm -hmm. Who do I want to spend 18 hours with? Yeah. (laughs) And what does this cast look like? And I want my department to look like this cast. Mm -hmm. I want people to feel they're being represented in the crew. So there'll be a times I'll try out a new third. There'll be times that I'll try out two new people Mm -hmm. because it matches the project and it matches the the cast. 
Yeah. And another thing for me is very important is barbers, finding barbers that can come in, make sure the actors are comfortable, especially any highly textured hair Mm -hmm. actor. I want to make sure that they know that someone is extraordinarily proficient in their hair texture and finding that person to be a teammate with with my department is really important to me. That's awesome. So throughout your career thus far, what do you think has been the biggest challenge you have faced? Whether it be one particular hairstyle, one particular job, um, anything really. I think the biggest challenge for me is is being away from home. Right. I think I spend a lot of time in corporate apartments away from my family and it's not the greatest for me. Yeah. And I think I can figure out a wig. Like I'm going to, I'm going to figure out that hairstyle. Like Mm -hmm. I always win. That's the way I look at it. Like I look at it, a wig, I'm having trouble with it. I step away from it. I come back. I'm going to win. Yeah. No matter what I'm going to win. Yeah. But those Sunday afternoons when you're by yourself in a city that you don't live in, Mm. those are the hardest, those are the hardest times for me in my career is being away and being alone. And I do have an enormous circle of friends in LA and in New York but it's just not the same as being in your own back garden. Yeah, it's so true. <laughs> it's so funny. Because I think starting out, I was just like, yeah, I want to go on location. I want to be one of those people that's traveling around everywhere with work. And it's amazing, amazing. And then it's just like, be careful what you wish for, because then that happens and you're never home. And <laughs> even though yeah. it is an incredible experience, it starts to, I don't know if it's just age or what happens, but it starts to become more and more difficult and even more so after the pandemic and being at home 24 7 and then I just went away on location for a couple of months and it was the hardest location work I've ever done because I was just like I just need to see my dogs (laughs) yeah Yeah, I hear you (laughs) it was just like I couldn't even imagine if I had children like it would just oh be soul destroying so I mean it really is across the board with that it's so challenging even if you're just if it's simple thing is just missing your own bed <laughs> like or, or your backyard your, your back garden or just that familiar home feeling yeah I mean, my husband will come up every three weeks or so mm-hmm. but it's not the same it's also that's all that travel is taxing on him mm-hmm. while he's working full-time and yeah it just I don't know. Sometimes it hurts. That's, it hurts my feelings and it, you know, it just, it's hard. But I think you're probably in a position now where you can afford to be a little more picky with, as you're saying, like what jobs you say yes to and what you can decline is to make that balance a little, a little better. Right. I think that's the biggest lesson I'm pulling away from quarantine and the pandemic Mm -hmm. and being home is that my priorities have changed. And it's, I don't have to say yes to everything. Mm. And just because they think I'm the best person for the job, I may not feel that way. I think it's a hard lesson to learn because I think there's something within us as film crew that we feel like we have to go from job to job, that there shouldn't be a break in between, that we need to say yes. And I don't know where or why that starts in your brain, but it's a really hard habit to break. Yeah. I just, I'm not, I'm not married to it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. <laughs> I've seen, I've seen too many people like kind of live lonely lives and I don't want that for myself. Yeah. It's good that you see it and acknowledge it and work towards it, not being your reality. It's good. Yeah. I hope, I hope I can maintain a balance. 
that's that's definitely the goal. I think so. I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, we are well paid. And if you, you know, don't just spend every cent that's coming in every week, you can definitely afford to put some away and have some time off in between gigs and then choose which which gigs you want to take. And yeah. It's just working yeah, smarter, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely. I mean, that's when we were doing the prom and it got shut down during the top of the pandemic. I mean, who can spend the money when you're working 80 hours a week? That's so true. Um, so I would like to know, and this can be a difficult question to answer, but I would like to know what you feel helps you stand out as an artist. I used to think my fatal flaw in this industry and in my career was how sensitive I am. Mm-hmm. And I come, I've come to realize over the last year or so that that is my greatest strength. Mm-hmm. Like that is why I connect with actors in a way that helps them develop character. Mm-hmm. I think that is why I'm able to, to be a part of the, the narrative and to be a part of the storytelling is because I can really open up myself to the experiences of these characters and I can open up myself up to the experience of the actor that's sitting in the chair in front of me and what their goals and desires are for that day. And I used to think that it was something that was not great for me because my feelings would get hurt or someone would try to run over me and I don't allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. So I think that my sensitivity and I think my general like being open to the experiences of everyone around me has really led me into this very naturalistic style of hairdressing and, and designing mm-hmm. where everything is based on what that character has access to. What was their morning like? Where are they coming from? Where are they going? So I really try to tap into like all of those emotional experiences mm-hmm. and it really informs what they look like. Yeah. Instead of just this Instagram photo is what I want for this character. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I was about to say, so not even like yes the sensitivity and being able to completely dive into that but just wanting to and having the respect for what that actor needs to go through and needs to do like what their job is I feel like I've just come across so many stylists that they just yeah they just don't have respect for the actor's craft and it's quite sad that's the whole reason to watch. yeah I know <laughs> But it's just so it's so interesting. They, you know, there's the eye roll of like, oh, she wants blah blah blah, and it's just like, guys, this is what your job is. Like, you are helping them to create this character, and you know, it's just oh, it blows my mind. Just the this it seems to be a lack of respect for the actor and their craft. So it's so nice to hear you say that you are fully on board, and that must, I mean, in turn, actors must just absolutely love going through that with you. I hope so. I I have actors, you know, reach out to me for other projects after I've worked with them. So I, I hope so. I hope that that I hope that that's right. And it's also everyone needs something different depending on what day it is. Mm-hmm. Like I have to be sensitive to the fact that this actor needs me to be a court jester for them for the day. Right. And this actor needs me to be their father mm-hmm. for the day. And maybe it's a totally different story the next day, but. They trust us. We touch them. We physically have we have physical relationships with these people, mm. and it's important that we're setting them up for success and whatever that means for them for that scene work. Yeah, and they they feel looked after. They feel that somebody that they don't have to be paying attention to how they look. That somebody has that covered. Yes, absolutely. I think that's so important. So, having done so many different types of projects, 
I would love to know, is there something you haven't done that you would love to? I find myself doing a lot of LGBTQ projects, mm -hmm. which I love, and I would love to do tons more. Mm -hmm. But what I would, I want to do more LGBTQ projects in a period. Okay. So I want to, I want to do like a huge Western with people of color and indigenous people telling gay and lesbian stories. I want to kind of marry this, like what I've done in the past. So I've never done a Western. I think they sound so hard and so rough <laughs> yeah. and messy and dirty and mm -hmm. gross, but I've never done it. And yeah. I'd love to do some big, huge period Western about two cow ladies in love. That's so cool. Are you going to write this, Chris? <laughs> I actually, that's so funny you say that. I've actually, I've pitched an entirely different show to Brad Simpson, who's at Color Force, mm -hmm. who is one of the execs on American Crime Story, where I did this whole comedy in set in Austin yeah. with some of my favorite actresses that I wanted to work with again. So maybe I should pitch it. Ryan, I have an idea. Yeah, get it. <laughs> Make it happen. Because <laughs> I'd watch it. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's very cool. Hey, and coming up through through theater, through TV, through film, has there been one piece of advice that someone has given you that has really stuck with you? Absolutely. There's a hairdresser in New York called Alan D'Angerio. He is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant hairdresser. When I was first making my transition from theater to film, he pulled me aside and was like, I want to give you a piece of advice. You are still shooting for the balcony. And at first I was a little offended, but then when it sunk in, I realized he was right. What does that mean? Like I was dressing hair for 400 feet away. Right, got you. For the people in the nosebleeds. Mm -hmm. So they could see my wave and they could mm -hmm. see my shape and they mm -hmm. could see what I was attempting. And the camera's so much closer and so much more intimate that I needed to learn to make that adjustment in my hairdressing. Yeah, the subtle. Yeah, the subtleness, the fuzziness, the a little bit of like messer at the back of the neck of an updo, like learning those really very subtle things was a real, something I carry with me all the time. And I've said it to other people now, like one time Alan told me this and it was hurtful at the time, but he was hundred percent right. Mm. And yeah, I, I think about it a lot. Like what, what, what am I doing? Um, make sure it's, make sure I'm doing a film and not theater. Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great piece of advice. I mean, it's such a big, difference i mean you've got you must have silhouette like nailed down you know like that yeah but just with that hd camera getting right in there it's just like you know you want that especially with your wigs it's just like that hairline's got to look real yeah. <laughs> the, the hair hair growth direction has got to look it's got to mm -hmm. you know be going the right way and i don't like things licked clean I like i don't like perfect perfect hair mm -hmm. it just doesn't it doesn't appeal to me as a person and people just don't generally look like that. Yeah. So I love all those, like that really subtle realism aspects of it. Yeah. I think there's, there's definitely a place for that, that perfect um, every hair in its place project. But I mean, most of the time that's not what we're making or not what we're working on. So yeah, as much as we want to strive for that perfection of every hair in its place, there's also something extremely satisfying to some flyaways and a bit of fluff. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, give me that. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm the same. So, what are you about to jump onto? Can you say? Yeah, I'm doing um, 
At Netflix Film here in Austin, it we've just started production meetings this week or last week. Mm-hmm. And it's a story about a young lady who has a different passive life that she's um, exploring. So it's going to be a lot of wigs and it's a it's a really it's a new group of people to me and I'm super I'm super excited to be coming home at the end of the night to my actual home. Yeah, that'll be great. It's called Plus Minus and it's a great script and yeah, excited. super excited about it. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, now I wanted to chat a little bit about your mentoring in your with your local union in Austin. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? Because I've seen a bit of it pop up on your social media. Sure. It all started uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. A group of people within uh, local 484 here in Texas and Oklahoma started the Inclusion and Diversity Committee. And we're a mixed local here in Texas. So it's people from all the departments together under one big umbrella. Mm-hmm. So we started discussions about how can we make this local look more like the population of the state? We have a very Caucasian local in a very Caucasian black and brown state. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways we thought we could do that is through mentorship. If people coming into the union to have a one-on-one safe landing spot with someone within their department to teach them the ropes and to teach them about set etiquette and about just the nuances of how to work in the film industry. So that's been my goal with the mentorship program is to, is to create a landing spot for new members, hopefully people that are going to diversify our union, but to give them the education they need to be successful. That's very cool. And just that support system. Absolutely. And I think it's really, really important. And once the world opens up more, I want to go into beauty schools. I want to go into the barber colleges and talk to local hairdressers here in Austin Mm -hmm. and just say, this is another career path. I'm not recruiting you. I'm not telling you I can get you a job. No. But this is just something else to think about. Yeah. Just instead of going. Let them know that it's a possibility. Yeah. Instead of going into a shop or a salon right away, this is something else that you can explore. Yeah, that's awesome. So it's just a different path that I came to this. Um, But yeah, people should know. People should know about it. Absolutely. So that mentoring, is that someone who has already, is it for people who have already kind of decided that that's the line of work they want to get into? Or is it also open to people who are thinking about it as a possibility to see whether it is something they want to do? I I think right now we're focusing on the newest members of Mm -hmm. the union, but in the, the, the goal in the future is to expand it to everybody on set and everyone who's interested in being on set, like getting the PAs together and saying, this is it. The PAs haven't decided what department they want to explore because we have everyone under the umbrella. Yeah. Like does this PA interested in, special effects makeup or are they more interested in electrics and giving them the opportunity to talk to people and find a career path that's best for them. So that's, that's a, that's a very big goal. Like we have to like kind of go out several rings of the system Mm -hmm. at that point, but that's kind of our long-term goal. That's very cool. And I think honestly, just the, the simple act (laughs) of teaching on set etiquette (laughs) is brilliant because I feel like there's a lot of people that have skipped over that and just not aware like nobody pulled them aside and said okay this is how it works they've just kind of rolled up and you know made it up as they go along literally like set etiquette 101 yeah (laughs) who's carrying the heaviest thing that person has the right of way yeah that was your lesson for today you know what I mean (laughs) which I mean would just you would think would be just life common sense but maybe not Uh, yeah (laughs) 
So tell me, you've got your trailer, you've got your station set up, you've got all your bits and pieces with you. If I was to take one tool or product away from you, Chris, what would you not want me to be taking away? I have a certifiable obsession with combs. (laughs) So an array of combs or a specific, like, one comb? (laughs) I want every comb on the planet to belong to me specifically. Okay. (laughs) I want them all. But one comb in particular, a YS Park tail comb, Mm -hmm. I don't seem to be able to put a wig on without one. Okay. And that would be the thing that I would handicap me. If you really wanted to handicap me, you'd take away my yellow tail combs. Oh, dear. I love that. And what about a product? I'm a huge fan of Unite 7 Seconds conditioner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just am nuts about it for wigs. Mm-hmm. And, oh, shoot, what is it called? Um, Lotta Body Setting Motion. Who's that by? I need my luck. It's a company called Lotta Body. Okay. And they do different different products, mousses and whatnot, but they have a setting lotion that I mix 50% water, 50% lot of body, do a good old roller set, put it in the oven, brush it out. You never know any products is in there. Oh, you have like this perfect period bouncy, whatever you need it to do or updo or whatever it is, but it doesn't flake. You don't see it. It's, you can dilute it way down if you want less hold. It's one of my like hero products for sure. Give me that and my yellow comb and I'm I can do anything. (laughs) Love it. And um, who would you like to hear on the podcast? I think Kathy Blondell would be really fascinating for me personally. Mm -hmm. When we were doing the Wolf of Wall Street, she was uh, Leo's personal hairdresser. Yeah. And we would sit on set and I'd literally, if there was a huge setup, turn to her and say, Kathy Blondell, tell me a story. (laughs) And she would talk about the most amazing hair pieces she had made or the most amazing experiences that she had. And I just... I think she's super groovy and I'd love to know more about um, just about her whole journey. That's very cool. I agree. I agree. Yeah. She's cool. Yeah. I've never met her. So that's awesome that you got to work with her. Yeah. She's, she's, yeah, she's a badass. (laughs) Well, Chris, I would like to thank you so much for your time and I have loved chatting to you and thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for asking. This was such a lovely experience and yeah, it just it was a great way to spend a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. For links to see more about our guests, go to our Instagram at the Last Looks Podcast or our website, thelastlookspodcast.com. If you want to keep up with new episodes being released, be sure to subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, Google Play, YouTube or any podcast streaming platform. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, share it. The Last Looks Podcast would like to thank Brett Stanley and Sabrina Castro. The song Fun Time by DJ Quads. Thanks for listening. Until next time. That's a wrap, people.